this moment, all that David has had is lost to him. His position in court, his family, his friend. It is not at all clear how the kingship promised by Samuel to him would ultimately be attained. And yet, in David's words that follow the introduction of the psalm, that follow the reference to his feigned madness, all we see is a resolute perspective founded in faith. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 206, Hamlet Among the Danes and David Among the Philistines. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. It is one of the most famous plots in the history of literature. Prince Hamlet of Denmark encounters the ghost of his father and learns that the latter had been murdered. He therefore vows vengeance against his uncle Claudius. Hamlet further decides to feign madness so that he will not be suspected by his target and tells his friend Horatio not to be alarmed or even act as if something was amiss as Hamlet's strange behavior is made manifest. Hamlet says, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. But come, here as before, never so help you mercy. How strange or odd soever I bear myself, as I perchance hereafter shall think meet to put an antic disposition on, that you at such time seeing me never shall, with arms encumbered thus, or this headshake, or by pronouncing of some doubtful phrase as, well, well, we know, or we could and if we would, or if we list to speak, or there be an if they might, or such ambiguous giving out to note that you know aught of me. So Hamlet says, but as the play goes on, of course, and we hear the soliloquies and tortured speeches of this royal prince, it becomes difficult to discern whether this madness is merely an external performance, or if it has become synonymous with his own tortured mind. Interestingly, long before this play was written, there occurred a true tale of royalty who feigned madness, who put on an antic disposition, and we have a soliloquy of his own. Yet this could not be more different from Hamlet's. The royal individual is David, and the psalm that he said reveals the soul of he who said it. Psalm 34 is one of the fascinating reflections of David that tells us precisely when he said it. It begins, which we can render as written by David when he changed his disposition before Avimelech, who sent him away, and he went. As the commentators explain, the word Avimelech here is a title for a Philistine king, and the reference here is to a story in the book of Samuel. As you may recall, Saul makes clear to his son Jonathan that he seeks David's death and is willing to go to great lengths to achieve it. David is warned by Jonathan and flees. Before David leaves Israelite territory, he needs a weapon, and the high priest, who lives in the priestly city of Nov, utterly unaware that David is wanted by the king, gives the acclaimed warrior the sword of Goliath. David then flees into Philistine territory, but of course the very sword he bears highlights how dangerous this course is. After all, the man who had killed Goliath and so many other enemies of Israel would of course be seen as an enemy by the Philistines. David decides, therefore, to put on an antic disposition to pretend to be suffused by madness so that he would not be interpreted as a threat. Thus the book of Samuel tells us, And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let a spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad, wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I need of mad men, 
that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David thus makes his escape through his own cunning, revealing thespian gifts, perhaps, that were heretofore unrevealed. And as readers of Hamlet, we may discern a certain symbolism in this story of David in the book of Samuel. Shakespeare scholar Marjorie Garber has argued that Hamlet's description of his mind as a distracted globe is also a description of the state of Denmark in the play. She writes, quote, The world of the play is itself distracted, maddened, diseased. Old Hamlet has been poisoned, and the poison affects not only the king, but the state. We know from plays like Richard II and the Henry IV plays, and even from Julius Caesar, a play written in the same year as Hamlet, that when the king is weak, so too is the kingdom. When there is corruption at the top, the land and its people are likewise corrupted and infected. Thus, in this play, the madness that Hamlet assumes is a madness already present in the state, for the king is the state. Hamlet's antic disposition, his feigned temperament of the fool and madman, is an objective correlative for the condition of his country and its rule. The world, or globe, of Hamlet the play is deliberately and insistently parallel to the mind, or globe, of Hamlet the man. End quote. Thus, we may ourselves suggest that while David's madness is feigned, it does perhaps symbolize a terrible chaos that has descended upon the kingdom of Israel. The mind of Saul has been afflicted, in the words of the Bible, by a ruach ra'am et Hashem, an evil spirit from the Lord. King Saul not only attempts to assassinate his most loyal servant and warrior, he takes David's wife away from him and gives her to another man, and he ultimately orders the massacre of the entire priestly city of Nov, merely because the high priest had unwittingly given David a sword. To paraphrase the play, there is indeed at this point something rotten in the state ruled by Saul. And yet, and yet, the similarities between the story of Hamlet and the Psalm of David end there. Indeed, the very similarities highlight the profound differences. Polonius famously says of Hamlet that though this be madness, yet there is method in it. But it is not clear whether Hamlet's antic disposition is truly thought through, whether it is methodical. It is not even clear at all that it is an act. Hamlet seems constantly torn between different courses of action, and perhaps torn even between what is true and what is false. Is the ghost real? Is vengeance against Claudius the right thing to do? Horatio originally warns Hamlet not to speak to the ghost, and the expressed worry of what may occur seems to be ultimately realized. Horatio says, What if it tempt you toward the flood, my lord, or to the dreadful summit of the cliff that beetles o'er his basin to the sea, and there assume some other horrible form which might deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness? Think of it. The very place puts toys of desperation without more motive into every brain that looks so many fathoms to the sea and hears it roar beneath. In describing Hamlet's tortured mind, Harold Bloom has argued that we make a mistake if we attempt to boil down Hamlet's motivation to revenge or anger at his mother's marriage. In Bloom's words, quote, all that matters is Hamlet's consciousness of his own consciousness, infinite, unlimited, and at war with itself, end quote. How different is the mind of David as expressed in this psalm? Think about it. At this moment, all that David has had is lost to him, his position in court, his family, his friend. It is not at all clear how the kingship promised by Samuel to him would ultimately be attained. And yet, in David's words that follow the introduction of the psalm, that follow the reference to his feigned madness, all we see is a resolute perspective founded in faith. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Thus, David on the run trusts in God. In the midst of constant danger, he sees salvation in his survival. So he continues, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth, such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. And David concludes, The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Were we to read this psalm simply as literature, it would be shocking. It is a work which introduces itself by saying that it was written while on the run, while feigning madness, while facing danger. And yet, this very same psalm then gives us only exultant praise of God. But of course, the psalms are not regular literature. They are inspired scripture. And the contrast between the crisis referenced at the psalm's beginning and the reverence reflected in the rest of the psalm signifies David's rootedness in faith, a faith which defines his life. Hamlet is often identified with indecisiveness, and in this, he is surely the opposite of David. But today, we often go to the other extreme. We celebrate decisive commitment to a cause as an end in itself. David reminds us that courage, alacrity, and decisiveness are worth celebrating when they are rooted in the God who is greater than ourselves, in a faith that for David impacted his own sense of self. Antonin Scalia, speaking once at a high school commencement, noted that today we all too often cite another character from Hamlet, Polonius, who said, to thine own self be true. We cite him, forgetting, as Scalia pointed out, that Polonius is a fool. Scalia said, quote, Indeed, to thine own self be true, depending upon who you think you are. It is a belief that seems particularly to beset modern society that believing deeply in something and following that belief is the most important thing a person can do. Get out there and picket or boycott or electioneer or whatever. Show yourself to be a committed person. That is the fashionable phrase. I am here to tell you, Scalia continued, that it is much less important how committed you are than what you are committed to. If I have to choose, I will undoubtedly take the less dynamic, indeed even the lazy person who knows what's right, than the zealot in the cause of error. He may move slower, but he's headed in the right direction. Movement is not necessarily progress. More important than your obligation to follow your conscience, or at least prior to it, is your obligation to form your conscience correctly. End quote. And Scalia added, quote, In short, it is your responsibility, men and women of the class of 88, not just to be zealous in the pursuit of your ideals, but to be sure that your ideals are the right ones, not merely in the ends, but in their means. That is perhaps the hardest part of being a good human being. Good intentions are not enough. Being a good person begins with being a wise person. Then, when you follow your conscience, you will be heading in the right direction. End quote. Our psalm was written at a desperate moment and yet it reflects no indecision or desperation. And what is revealed in it by David is a religious worldview filled with wisdom that can enlighten us all. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.